I realized recently that I hadn't really told you all the story. So I want to start five years ago in 2018. Do you remember that year? It was a rough time. It was a pretty rough time, especially here in this community where we had and have such an active ministry to people who are making their way into New York City. Migrants. Many of you work with them directly, either as new arrivals or as people in the school system or moving through the city and serving them. This congregation has a very long history of work with migrants. And so out of that, in 2018, you'll remember that was the middle of the last presidency. And by this point, halfway through, they had finally figured out how to be as cruel as possible to migrant communities. It took them a minute because they hadn't been in power yet and all they did was talk about getting in power. But then once they got there, they got to know the system and they could think of all the pressure points to make people's lives absolutely miserable. And around March of 2018, we started to learn about some of the ways that these cruel practices were playing out. And we noticed them because when people would somehow cross the border, make their way into the country, and get to New York City, which is a very typical pattern, right? This is who we are, what we always have been here in New York City, and we're proud of that. But as people would get here, they would start to tell us their stories. And as they worked their way through the asylum process, if that was their route, they needed help. And there aren't enough immigration attorneys to make it happen. And so we in New Sanctuary, which is the organization I used to chair and served for many, many years, about nine, we started to expand our clinic. And what started with a program in about 2009 of about 20 volunteers during the last administration ballooned to about 3,000 volunteers here in New York City. And we worked really, really hard to build that up, but it was because there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough supply. There wasn't enough help. And we went around to congregations, especially because it's a congregation-based program, and said, do you have attorneys who can help our pro se program? Do you have people who can accompany people to court? Do you have people who can come with us to the Jericho Walk as we circled the place where people are detained for deportation or where immigration courts are? And as we did this, people signed up and they said yes. But as we did, we also had that many more people who needed help. And they started to tell us their stories. And we learned more and more about how hard it was getting to cross the border and how cruel it was becoming. And one of the things we learned in that time was that they were taking families, families, moms, dads, children, couples, and they were separating them. They would take the mom and the kids and put them in family detention. And then they would take the dads, and if the dads were even allowed to cross, they'd be separated somewhere else. And this detention, we learned, was not like the jails and the prisons that U.S. citizens get sent to. This was basically a place where they would somehow, 
in this arid desert, usually, make a space of cruelty. It was cold. They called them ice freezers. And they would close, they would close people into literal cages, and then they would make the room really, really cold so nobody could sleep. And they were in close quarters, and people just got so sick, and people died. And the moms were without the dads, and the children then, because that seemed, they thought maybe this could serve as a deterrent, but the children got separated from their parents too. So then they would take these babies and kids and put them in these cold rooms with those mylar blankets, maybe. They would give them a frozen burrito that they may or may not heat up for them, and that was their meal for the day. It was cruel. And so we said, why doesn't anyone know about this? And why aren't we doing anything about it? And so we started to raise the alarms, and we told people about it. And back then, I had a pretty active social media presence that I don't have anymore. But back then, I did. And I tried to use everything that I had to, along with everyone else, to just tell the stories and raise the alarms. And we did that. And then people started to hear more, and they started to come in and wanting to do more also to support these families that were being separated. And the babies were being shipped from the border, and then we would meet them at LaGuardia Airport. You remember? We would meet them at the airport. We would meet them at JFK. The flight attendants and the pilots would call us and tell us that they were coming, and they would say, we see an adult with about 13 children. So they must be these separated babies. And then we would go and we would hold up signs and teddy bears, and that was the best we could do, but then we would try to follow them to all the different places where children are taken. And this was the project. You were involved in this. This made the US government very angry. And because of it, they tried to find ways to shut down ways that we were helping people. And the family separation all of a sudden started to get people who had never really thought about immigration to pay attention. But then, do you remember the name, the migrant caravan? So the migrant caravan then started coming, and this became a big news story because it was a thing of fear. Right? So the bad guys could say, oh, this caravan or people are coming and they're going to take over the border and kill us and destroy the American way of life, right? Language like that. And so there was a lot of focus on the border, but a lot of false tales about what was happening there. So we in New York City said, how is it that we can understand and tell the truth about what is happening down there, and how can we get more and more people to understand and care about it and act, act in their own communities and talk to their legislators and elected officials to be a space of sanctuary locally, but also friendly to migrants, immigrants coming into the country legislatively, because that's where this all will ultimately play out. So what we decided to do was to create what's called, what was called the Sanctuary Caravan. And we sent probably, I think we sent something like 700 volunteers down to our U.S. southern border between Tijuana and San Diego. And we picked that spot because I used to serve a church in San Diego, so I had contacts there. And 
these incredibly dedicated people would go either for a week or a month or they gave the time they had. And they set up two clinics, one in Tijuana, one in San Diego. One modeled what we do here with Pro Se, teaching people how to advocate for themselves as they go through the asylum process. And the other received, helped to receive people so that we could get them wherever they were headed in the country afterwards. That was the work. And on one of those trips, just after Thanksgiving in 2018, me and a group of clergy from here in New York City went down to sort of set all this up. And, and when we were there, we were with an organization called Al Otro Lado in Tijuana. And these people who work and volunteer at Al Otro Lado, meaning Al Otro Lado means on the other side, they would take all of their time and all of their energy to try to help people and protect them. When we were there, I met a woman who just walked into the clinic and she described that she had been kidnapped by, you know, the cartels who were taking her in and they made her work doing unthinkable things at night. And during the day, she could sneak away to maybe try to figure out how she could get out of their grips. But it is so dangerous down there, especially for younger people, for people who don't have protections. And Al Alcholado does this. They, they help people sneak away from the cartels and all of their terrible work. And so we went down there. And at the time, there was a camp um, at the stadium and it was squalid conditions and kids, it was dangerous to take a shower, it was, it was terrible, but, but it was where people were. And we asked Al Otrolada, we're pastors, what can we do to help? And they said, well, you know, we've got these couples, we have these families that are common law married in their own home countries, but never quite had the money to be able to get married, because getting married is expensive, right? And if you're dirt, 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 dirt poor, Living together is going to be enough. But these were families where they had kids, but they just didn't ever have a chance to be married. And we had about seven clergy with us. So we said, sure, we can marry you. We can do a celebration. And so what we did was on the roof of Alotrolado, the space they were in back then, which overlooks much of Tijuana and is just steps away from the border, we set up flowers we built these, um, we built like a, a special space where people could come and, and we processed the brides in. These were hetero couples. We processed the brides in and all of them had kids. So they carried their kids or they held their hands as they walked to meet their husbands who were there with um, Father Fabian who has much better Spanish than I did do. And we officiated 17 marriages. This was, I've officiated over probably 300 marriages in my life. It's a lot, I do many marriages. But to a T, I have never been in such a holy place. It was just crisp with the presence of God. It was beautiful. I had never seen such a holy moment where it was just unexpected to encounter this form of love that hadn't had the formal blessing of church, and we offered that. And we offered them a little marriage certificate 
from Park Avenue Christian Church, this got you in trouble later, that said, by the ordinance of the church and the power of God, we declare you married. Because we did this, and specifically because I was the one with the biggest social media presence at the time, the loudest voice on this, um, the government put me on a secret surveillance list, targeted me, targeted this church, surveilled us, watched us, listened in, looked at my phone tolls, looked at my bank accounts, followed me, uh, detained me at the border, interrogated me, continued to do all kinds of things, then wrote to the Mexican government and said, if she should try to cross into Mexico again, arrest her, detain her, and return her to our custody. Unprecedented email. And at trial, we learned that the guy who wrote that email um, had no basis for that. And when asked, they said, well, where did that come from then? And he said it was creative writing. Anyway, all of that happened and it was a nightmare for me because I didn't know the extent of all these things. But for me and a number of other people who were targeted, we all decided to file lawsuits. It was four years ago, almost to the date, we learned about this. And this week, despite all the expectations, because we really didn't think we would win, we thought we would try, but we didn't know, and we won. We won. <laughs> and a federal judge appointed by Donald Trump, a federal judge who was a drug prosecutor in the 80s and 90s, a federal judge who would not at all be, pre, we would guess, would not at all be predisposed to rule in our favor, knew and saw the evidence and said, this was wrong. Not only was it wrong, but it was illegal. And not only was it illegal, it violated the Constitution for uh, First Amendment rights, free exercise, free speech, and Religious Freedom Restoration Act, all three of those. The judge ruled in our favor, and I wanted you to understand what this means for people who try to help others. It means that we held law enforcement accountable for targeting us for helping people. Law enforcement is never held accountable. This never happens. And what I want you to understand is that this was a miracle. We see God at work in this work. It was a nightmare for me, the death threats. These men who stand at the door for free every week and have done so for the past four years are there because of this, because we stand together and help. It matters. It matters because what we've now shown is that if you do try to help people and the government tries to crack down on you because they don't like the people you help, they will be held accountable. And it's precedent setting. So I am grateful for this miracle and realized when the news came out that I had never really shared that story except in pieces with this church. But I wanted you to know and I wanted you to know how grateful I am to this community for helping to make this happen for others. Miracles are real. And I tell that story 
in the context today of transfiguration. And just to remind you of what happens there, Jesus takes, Jesus goes up a mountain with some disciples. They fall asleep, and all of a sudden, when they wake up, they see him with some of the greatest prophets of the age, just talking, chatting, casually like they're friends. And it revealed something about God that they hadn't even, or that they had never even considered. It revealed something about Jesus that maybe they had thought was true, but just weren't sure. For this man who had been an inspiration to them, who had shown them that healing was possible by the laying on of hands, who had shown them that compassion and mercy and love were the way to live, who had drawn them from everything that they had been part of, and we don't know their backstories, but we do know that they left their families to create a new one with Jesus. He had shown them so many wonderful things, and he had made miracles happen before them, but then he was buddies with Moses and Elijah? He was in them, before them, just floating up in the, in the clouds with his, sky, with his face just shining. What was this man? And what was he doing in this moment? They had the chance, what we call a beatific vision. They had the chance to have a vision of the power of God that they hadn't had before. But first, they had to draw up to the mountaintop. And what I would like to say to you as I head towards closing is that God has some pretty incredible ways of showing up for us. God is prepared and will always, consistently, without fail, give you that beatific vision, that moment of awe and glory and wonder. In fact, I believe that no matter where you are in your life and your journey and your troubles and all the things that might be challenging you, there is this moment of awe and wonder before you now. Maybe it means you have to withdraw to the mountaintop, whatever that may be for you. But wherever you are, I believe that if you can draw yourself back into a space of deep gratitude, when you open your eyes, you will behold the glory of God. There will be some miracle before you. You just have to be ready to look and see it. Sometimes they're dramatic, like my lawsuit. But sometimes it's the twinkle in your neighbor's eye that just tells you that you are beloved and cared for. Or it's the time that someone has put into a meal that just warms your belly and fills your heart with love. Or it's the phone call from someone you haven't talked to in, in quite some time, but, but when you start that conversation, it just picks up right where it was before. 
when you open your eyes to miracles and trust that they're there, all of a sudden God is transfigured before you and you start to see a vision of the glory of God in your everyday life. And the place I believe that starts is with gratitude. We are called in our gratitude to serve. And just like the woman with the alabaster jar, we all have a gift that we can share. And out of that place of sharing, I promise you, God will be revealed. God will show up for you. God will be mysterious and beautiful. There is a story, a midrash, about Pharaoh. And Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, I would say also Miriam, were in this long-term debate about the power and glory of God. And Pharaoh was saying, well, how am I supposed to know to believe in your God? Because, you know, I've got soothsayers, I've got snake trainers, I've got other people who do magic. And what Moses was doing with his staff may be interpreted as such. And so he said, Pharaoh said, well, what has your God done for anybody? And he said, because this magician did that, and this general did this for me, and all, he started just rattling off signs of human power, wanting Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to give him similar examples. And they said, sure, our God has power. Our God has might. You'll see in a minute. But our God is the God of sunrise, of the rising of the sun and the going down of the same. Our God is the God of the beautiful moments, of the first breath, the first cry of a baby, of the love between lovers, of all the beautiful moments that, that your magicians could never pull off. Our God is a God of glory and might and power, yes, but of small moments and of gifts aplenty. As we head into this holiest of weeks next week, I invite you from that spirit of gratitude to behold the glory of God, to hold your alabaster jar and share everything you've got. In Jesus' name, amen.